Thank you for singing loudly. Um, last few nights, we haven't gotten much sleep because Owen's been having a really hard time. He's been waking up a lot in the middle of nights, and so I'm kind of worn out right now. But one of the most encouraging things to me, um, especially like the, the last song right before I get up to preach, and I'm usually praying, God, you know, help me to help me to say the right things. Uh, may you be speaking instead of me. Uh, anything you want me to change at the last minute. But one of the most encouraging things is to have a bunch of voices singing the praises of God coming from behind, and uh, especially kids who are now out. But uh, I love to hear their voices belting it out too. So thank you everybody for singing, uh, singing loudly to your king, and in the process of that also encouraging me. I really appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, uh, that we can come together as your people. We thank you for warm weather. Even though it's a little rainy right now, and uh, we thank you for the changing of the seasons. Lord, would you uh, be bringing us as a church into a new season? Would you reunite us after uh, quarantines and isolation and all that? Would you build us back together as a single body? Would you build us stronger? And would you send us out to reach those who are not yet part of your kingdom? Pray, Lord, that you would use this passage in Genesis today to encourage us and to challenge us, to shape us as individuals and families and as a congregation. So we yield ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. uh, Cody, up here, it feels like it's ringing a little bit. I don't know how it sounds out there, but you might need to pull it down a little bit. So thanks. All right. We start into the fourth and final section of the book of Genesis today. Believe it or not, we started this back in 2018. Now, we've taken a bunch of big breaks and stuff, but we have, we've been dealing with the story of Genesis for quite a while now, and uh, I hope that it is shaping your hearts and your souls and your lives, that it's giving you a, a foundation to understand not just the Bible, but to understand the world, understand your life. Genesis really is the, the first building block to understanding what God has been doing and what He is doing even now and will do in the future. Adults, I want you to think back to when you were 17. Some of you are like, well, it's just like last week, but some of us, we got to think back farther. What, what did you look like at 17? For me, this is what I looked like. I know what you're thinking. What a stud, right? <laughs> the ladies must have been busting down the door right? Yeah, that was my, my senior picture. Um, don't worry, young people, you will someday look back at your teenage pictures and you will think, who is that dork, right? Yes, it will come. So what did you look like? What, what did you like to do for fun? What, what kind of music did you listen to? What did you do when you were hanging out on the weekends with your friends? Did, were you working a job? Were you going to school? What was going on? For me, uh, at 17, I had just graduated from high school and uh, was really excited to be heading off to college uh, in the fall. I was working at Ace Hardware, which was a job that I loved. Like Every two minutes, somebody new would walk in the door with a problem that I could be the hero to solve. It was great. Loved that job. Um, on the, the weekends, uh, I loved to go fishing. I loved to go hiking. I loved to go hang out with friends. I was searching for a new church that I could plug into and belong in because bad things had happened at my church that I grew up in. So there was, there was a lot of stuff going on in my life when I was 17. 
we tend to look back on our teenage years, particularly those older teenage years, with a sense of nostalgia. We, we think of it kind of as the good old days. We had, um, maybe it was the, the peak of our, our strength, our physical strength, our coordination. Uh, we felt like we were on top of the world. We had newfound freedoms. We're driving. We're doing what we want with our time. Maybe we've got more money than we've ever had before because we're working a, a real job. But we, we still have a decreased sense of responsibility because mom and dad are still taking care of lots of stuff for us. And so even as adults, and maybe even some of the older adults in the congregation, you look back at those 16, 17, 18-year days, and you think, man, those were, like, those were the good old days, right? And we forget like, all the heartbreak, all the trying to fit in, all of the I got stabbed behind the back, and I fought with my parents, and I wrecked the car, and we forget all that stuff. We just look back at it. And popular culture points us in that direction. Movies, music, songs, all of that makes us think of our teenage years as the high point in our lives. Let me illustrate for you guys. Well, the older folks in the room, you might recognize this. So anybody know what song this is? I got my first real six string Bought it at the five and dime Played it till my fingers bled Was the summer of 69 Yeah, you guys know that song. How's it end? How's the chorus end? Those were the best days of my life That's sad, isn't it? If, if 17 marks the best days of your life, I mean, it's all downhill from there. Some of you, you're 16, you're thinking, I've only got a year left. What, <laughs> what am I going to do? But our, our culture points us in that direction. And most of you guys could sing that song. Um, today we're looking at Joseph. So we got Abraham, giant of the faith, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, great-grandson of Abraham. And Joseph, as we meet him in the story today, is 17 years old. Now his situation is a little different than most of our 17-year-old situations, but I just I want you to picture yourself as a 17-year-old as we go through this story. As we've been working through this whole book of Genesis... Everything that's taken place so far has been taking place on the map in this red shaded area. So the bulb at the top there would be uh, Garden of Eden area, where the ark landed, all of that. Sticking down the right side in Iraq, you got the Tower of Babel and um, uh, Abraham being called out of there. And then you're going up around the Fertile Crescent. We're going to make our way all the way over into to Egypt with the Joseph story. Joseph's family has already spent some time in Egypt with Abraham having to go there for a while. But this, this little curved section of the world is where so far all of the, the big history has taken place. Like I've said before, we've got four major sections. If you remember the first section of Genesis, the earliest history, we've got God creating everything out of nothing. This is fundamental to the Christian worldview. It's not that God started with a bunch of stuff and just over billions of years kind of made things and eventually it worked but that he started with nothing, created out of nothing everything that there is, and created it on purpose, and created it good. 
that the world that we're living in right now, yes, the fall has happened, there's corruption, there's all kinds of stuff, but, but it was created good. We got the flood in that first 11 chapters, we got the Tower of Babel and all that. And then the second section is the Abraham section. We get the, the crazy stories of Abraham and Sarah, they're moving from Ur and going all the way to the land of Canaan. We get the story of Ishmael being born because they couldn't wait patiently and wait for God to bring about a son from Sarah. And so Ishmael is born from the, from the servant. We got the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of that's the second part. Then the third part, we get the Jacob story, the grandson of Abraham. We just finished that last week, and the Jacob story is a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, up and down, up and down. He does well for about five minutes, and then he messes it up for the next five years, and then he does well for five. It's just Jacob was a mess. The mess of the Jacob story serves as the backdrop for the, the, the beauty, really, of the Joseph story. Like, finally, we're, we're going to get a real hero. But it starts a little rocky for Joseph. So if you've got a Bible, let's go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 37. It's on page 31 if you're using one of the pew Bibles. As you're finding that, remember that uh, Jacob, uh, he's, he's got a real messed up family. He's got four wives. He's got a whole bunch of kids from those four wives. There's been rivalry, favoritism, bitterness, anger, uh, lying, deceit. There's been all kinds of stuff in Jacob's family. And that's the backdrop for the, the ugliness that will happen today. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan, which we would today call Israel. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to their father. So uh, let's just put the family tree up here and remember what we're dealing with. So you've got, you've got four wives, uh, Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah. And Rachel is definitely the favorite. He's the one, she's the one that Jacob wanted to marry in the first place, got tricked into marrying Leah, ended up with the two servants. Uh, so what we've got is, at this point in the story, Joseph is 17. He is the favorite child. He is the one that's been babied his whole life. And he is not grouped with the sons of Leah in the story. He's grouped with the sons of the two servants, Zilpah and Bilhah. So the sons of Leah are out uh, tending the flock in one area. The sons of Zilpah and Bilhah are tending the flock in another area, and Joseph's hanging out with them. He brings a bad report to dad. So one of the first things we learn about Joseph is that it could be that he's a tattletale. He's hanging out with his brothers. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. He goes back and helpfully informs his father what his brothers are doing, right? This is going to set up some of the drama that comes next, although it's the other set of brothers, the sons of Leah, that are really going to be causing the problem. But we're, we're meant to understood that there is rivalry, there is favoritism, and it's starting to really cause a problem. It says it real clearly in the next verse. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any 
other of his sons. Remember, Israel is the new name for Jacob. So Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, this whole robe of many colors thing, uh, you know, it's been made into mu- musicals and all that. Um, the color is not so much important other than it's really expensive to make colorful fabric at that point. So it's, uh, it's a sacrifice. It's an honor for him. The, the big deal is the fact that dad makes a robe and gives it to the son who is not the firstborn son. He's way down the line. Number 11. When dad gives the robe to Joseph, especially the expensive colorful robe, he is essentially saying to the rest of the boys, Joseph is my favorite. You guys already knew that. He's also my choice to be the heir. That's the, that's the implied message there. And you can imagine how poorly that went over in the hearts of these other boys. Now, it's not said out loud, but this message is clearly commun- communicated to them. Verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. That is, they're gathering up the, the, uh, the cut wheat and, and other stuff, and they're, they're binding it together into sheaves that are sticking up. Picture like an old-time Amish field, and that's, that's the kind of thing that they're doing there. Behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, when we have dreams, we don't typically assume they have some kind of incredible life meaning to us, right? Most of the time, we, if we wake up and we remember a dream, we think something like, that was weird. What, what did I eat last night that caused that, right? It's not the default for us to, to wake up and think, I wonder if God was saying something to me in that dream. I wonder if this dream is pointing me to the future of my life, that this is the, the calling of my life. But when Joseph shares this dream with the brothers, they immediately assume that there is some kind of significance, that there's a meaning, that there's a point behind the dream. Joseph is, if he's not arrogant, he's at least oblivious. And he walks up to his brothers and he says, hey, guess what, guys? I had a dream and and basically you guys were all bowing down to me. Isn't that a neat dream? And they, of course, don't respond very favorably. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So the hatred, the bitterness is growing. They're they're hiding that bitterness in their hearts. They're waiting for an opportunity to let it out, as we will see later in the story. Now, in the ancient world, especially when you're telling a story, if you repeat something, if this thing happens in the story, and then it happens again in almost the same way, you are communicating to your hearers that not only is this thing significant, but it's like it's sealed by God, like this thing will come to pass. And so as we read this story and we get a repeat of what's happening with the dream, it is a literary style there that's meant to say to the first hearers and readers, this is guaranteed. Because this is happening another time, this is guaranteed. Verse 9, 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. I'm sure at that point they rolled their eyes. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So dad, just like the brothers for the first dream, dad understands that there is a meaning here. Not only do you have a bunch of brothers bowing down now, but you've got the brothers represented by the stars, and you've got the sun and the moon representing the parents. And in the dream, the point is the whole family is going to bow down before Joseph, who will rule over them. Now, if you're familiar with the Joseph story, you know that by the end of the story, this actually does happen. It doesn't happen in the, the negative way that, that Jacob and his sons think it might happen. Like They're mad about this. Turns out it's going to happen in such a way that saves their lives. But they can't see any of that at this point. Notice, though, that Jacob responds a little differently than his sons. They're just mad. But Jacob, it says, kept this in mind. It's like he just, he, he kept it in there. He kept chewing on it. He's meditating on it, wondering what's going on here. And I think that's because Jacob's been around long enough that he's starting to suspect that God is, he takes delight in working in ways that we don't think he should work. So in the family, we've got this history of the firstborn sons who should be the leaders end up being the followers. So Abraham gives birth to well, he doesn't give birth to, but he fathers Ishmael and Isaac, but Isaac, the secondborn, is the one who the promise goes to, and the inheritance goes through, and the family line goes through. And Isaac, he's got two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first. Jacob is the one that is chosen, though. He supplants his brother. It's not so much of a stretch then for Jacob to look at his son, his favorite son, who's way down the line and wonder, is God going to raise him up instead of the firstborn? Especially because when we looked last week, the firstborn, Reuben, has just committed a terrible sin against his father and his family. He has essentially tried to usurp leadership in the family, and he's no longer in the good graces of his father. Also take into account that Jacob himself has had significant communication from God through at least one dream. Remember, he's on his way north, fleeing from his brother. He's at Bethel. He's sleeping with the rock as a pillow. And he has this vision of the angels going up and down the ladder. That's in a dream at night. And so you've got family history and personal history that suggests to Jacob that maybe he should, he should think about this a little bit. He should not be too quick to judge that maybe God is actually up to something here. Perhaps this is the plan of God. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. Bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, Hebron and he came to Shechem. So let's look at our map. Hebron being in the south, 
about 50 miles up to Shechem. The other places are places that we looked last week as they went from Shechem down to Hebron. They passed through those particular places. If you were starting right now, you just like, I'm going to show up, I'm going to open the Bible to chapter 37 of Genesis, I'm going to start the story there. You wouldn't think anything particularly interesting is happening with the map. But if you've been tracking with us, you should be thinking, Shechem, I've heard that before. What was it that happened at Shechem? Well, you remember, it was just a couple weeks ago, that the, uh, the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, wanted to build her social life. And so she snuck out and she started hanging out with the ladies of Shechem. She just wanted to have some fun to build some friendships. And what happened was, she ends up being raped and kidnapped by the prince of Shechem, who's also named Shechem. Jacob, her dad, is too cowardly to do anything about it, but her brothers, the sons of Leah, they are filled with murderous rage. Righteous anger mixed with unrighteous, murderous rage. And so they trick the people of Shechem. They convince the men that if they will be circumcised, then the two families, the two clans can come together, become one, Increase the family size, increase the wealth, it's a great deal. And as the men of the city are recovering from that circumcision procedure, the boys of Leah come in and murder them all. They kidnap the wives, they kidnap the children, they take all the wealth away from Shechem. That's just a couple chapters ago. So why are the sons of Jacob back in Shechem. Of all the places they could wander with the flocks of sheep, why would they go back to Shechem? Are they going back to gloat over their victory, see if there's anybody hiding in the caves that they still need to whoop their butts? Are they going back to reassert their leadership? Has somebody come in and and occupied the land that they now think is theirs and they want to go back and claim it? Do you remember when they left Shechem and they were heading to Bethel, getting ready to worship God, Jacob says to his whole family, including all of the new people who were just added to the family because of the raid, he says to them this. He says, give me all of your foreign gods, your idols, your jewelry that points to the foreign gods. Give them to me and purify yourself before we go worship God. And then this happened. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And I have to wonder, are the boys going back to dig up the buried treasure? We're not told that. It could just be that that's where the best land is. But it would not be out of the character of these guys to be going back and looking for the loot that Dad buried under the tree. Whatever brought them there, They are in enemy territory. When they left the land, Jacob had just scolded them in a selfish way, saying, what you guys have done was evil, and it affects me. He's not so much worried about the death of the people that were murdered or the kidnapping of the women and children. He's saying, you have made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Everybody's going to be my enemy now. That's how they left. And so they're going back into that area where... Theoretically, everybody should hate them. There must have been some kind of financial reason that they would go there. Maybe it's simply the best land for grazing. Now, 
Joseph is sent to go find his brothers. Think about Jacob. He knows that the people up there north in Shechem hate his family. He knows that there's sibling rivalry, there's the the newfound tension with the dreams, that the brothers hate Joseph, and he decides to send Joseph by himself on a 50-mile walk through enemy territory to his hostile brothers. What is Jacob thinking? How could this possibly go well? Now, Joseph gets up there and he's He's wandering around. He can't find him. This is what happens. Verse 15. A man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Look at our map here. He's going to continue farther from home, another 10 or 15 miles north northwest of Dothan. Now, this is the first time that the city of Dothan is mentioned mentioned in the Bible, but it's not the last time. About a thousand years after this, the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, will be there, and he'll be in the city, and his arch enemy, the king of Syria, yep, the same Syria that we bombed just this week, the king of Syria has surrounded, with his army, surrounded the city in order to capture and kill the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah's servant is freaking out about this. He sees the the armies all around him. He has no idea how they're going to escape this. But Elijah, as the prophet, he can see a spiritual reality that is hidden from the servant. And so he, he prays that God would open the eyes of the servant, the spiritual eyes of the servant, that he would be able to see. And we see this in 2 Kings 6.16. Elijah, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You, you can only see this little group of scared people hiding in the city of Dothan with the army surrounding them, but there's actually a different reality. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Angels waiting to do battle if needed on behalf of the prophet Elijah. So just as Jacob was given that that special glimpse into the unseen world, at Bethel, he got to see the angels going up and down that ladder in his, in his night vision. Joseph is now at a place where a, uh, another glimpsing into the spiritual world is given to the prophet Elisha. But let's get back to our Joseph story. He's going to come upon, upon his brothers, and we have to wonder how the brothers are going to respond. Verse 18. They saw him from afar... Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So there's been lots of talk the last year and a half about conspiracy theories. Here's an actual conspiracy. They're making a secret plan. What are they going to do with him? They conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. The hatred in their voice. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him into the one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see you. What will become of his dreams? So you got the years of favoritism and hatred, but the dreams have pushed him over the edge. They refer to him with hatred in their voice as the dreamer. They say, we're going to kill him, and then we'll see what will happen with the dreams. Cold-blooded 
murder is their plan. They hate Joseph, and they will do anything, even kill him, to silence him. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him in this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So this is surprising because Reuben, in the previous chapters, he's shown himself to be an immoral scoundrel of a man. He has basically waged war against his father. Now, why he's allowed to even be in the family at this point is a mystery to me other than the fact that Jacob has shown himself to be a coward many times and he's just not going to stand up to his brother, to his, to his son. But Reuben seems to know that that he needs to get back into the good graces of his dad. And there's, like, this is his opportunity. He convinces the brothers, let's put him in the pit, and then Reuben's plan is to come back later, rescue him out of the pit, return him to dad, and maybe that will patch up the relationship. Well, Reuben apparently has to leave and go take care of something. Maybe it's his turn to, to watch the sheep on the other side of the hill. We don't know. We get this, 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, for there's no water in it. This is probably a cistern for watering the flocks. It's not the rainy season, and so there's not much water in there. Verse 25, they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Literally meaning, what good does it do us financially? It doesn't get us anything. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. He's even trying to fool himself that he's caring for his brother at this point. His brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now this is happening while Reuben's gone. He doesn't know what's happening. He's going to come back later and find out that the boy's gone, and he's, he's going to have a bit of a meltdown. All through the story of Joseph, as we go all the way through the end of Genesis, we're going to see parallel after parallel of the life of Jesus. Joseph is a, a type or a foreshadowing or a a hinting at Jesus who is to come. And one of the ways that we see that is in the sufferings of Joseph that lead to the deliverance of many. This is the beginning of the sufferings of Joseph. He's captured by his brothers. He's thrown into the pit. He's going to be sold as a slave. He's going to have to travel to Egypt. Interestingly, Jesus himself, as a young boy, had to travel to Egypt and return out of there. But as we see the Joseph story go on, we're going to see more and more and more how the sufferings of Joseph are God's plan for the deliverance of his people. Just as the ultimate sufferings of Jesus on the cross, dying for us, is the divine plan for the deliverance of his people. Now you may be wondering, what's the deal here? We got Ishmaelites, we got Midianites. They seem to be talking about the same people. Let's go back to our map. So the Ishmaelites are mixed with other groups. So you've got the Edomites, who are basically uh, Ishmaelites plus the descendants of Esau. So Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is the, the unwanted one from the, uh, the servant. 
And he is basically sent off in exile, off into what we would call Saudi Arabia today. The next generation then, uh, so Ishmael and Esau, come together. They merge their groups together. We refer to them as the Edomites. The Midianites then, they're basically um, the same kind of mix with a little bit more of the Arabian blood in them, and they tend to be a little farther south. And these names just get kind of interchanged, especially by the time that Moses is writing this after the Exodus. This whole region, extending down into Saudi Arabia, is just, it's the Ishmaelites, it's the Edomites, it's the Midianites, it's, it's all of those. Now what they've done is they've come up through the, the desert on the, on the east side of the Jordan Valley. They've gone to Gilead, and they've purchased valuable materials, that gum, that balm, and the myrrh. And then they're cutting across through Dothan, and they're going to go down the coastal plain all the way to Egypt, where they're going to sell the stuff at a profit. And they've been doing this their whole lives, just going in a circle, buy the stuff, sell it in Egypt, buy the stuff, sell it in Egypt, buy the stuff, sell it. And as they come along, they end up being able to purchase a slave as a bonus. They don't know the story. They don't know that his brother's selling a brother, but they, they offer a price. They probably haggle back and forth, and they come up with this, uh, this price of 20 shekels. Uh, a shekel is about two-fifths of, of an ounce. We're told that it is silver that they are dealing in here, and so you got eight ounces. I'm going to pass this around for you guys. This is eight ounces of silver. Take it out of the uh, little thing here, maybe, if I can get it. Pass this around. Don't worry about tarnishing it. We'll, we'll fix it up later, but I want you to, to feel this in your, in your hands, the weight of this, and feel it and just weigh it. Like this, this is a man's life, right? He's being sold for this. Eight ounces of silver. We don't know how valuable that was at that time, but today, if you took the going rate for silver, that is worth $211 today. So a man's life is sold into slavery for that thing that weighs a little bit more than your phone and costs about the same as a really nice dinner for two and a couple concert tickets. He sold as a slave by his brothers. They got to split that (laughs) at least 10 ways. They're walking away with 20 bucks for selling their brother for the rest of his life as a slave. How little they value Joseph. Now, this still takes place even today. There are, in fact, more slaves on the face of the earth today than there have been at any other point in history. There are many slaves in America, thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of slaves in America even today. They tend to be kids and women, and they are usually enslaved to the sex industry. Just in the last couple months, I've seen headline after headline of an FBI raid here, an FBI raid there, where they're going in after months of research, they're breaking down the door, and they're finding a bunch of kids that are being held captive, being prepared for being sold as sex slaves. Just last month, a single raid in Southern California rescued 33 children all held together in one house. That's just last month. And we say, well, it's California. You know, what do you expect, right? 
But actually, the trading of humans, we are sitting at one of the, the most important corridors for the trading of humans in all of North America. 75 running north and south through the country, 70 running east to west across the country. If, if you could find your local FBI guy and tell me what's going on here in the Miami Valley, he would tell you human trafficking is alive and well because of those two roads intersecting here in the Dayton area. It's invisible to us, but it's happening all the time. Reuben comes back. Verse 29. Reuben returned to the pit, and he saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes, anger, a sign of mourning. He returned to his brothers who said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? So you can see he's not really concerned about the boy. He's like, He's got his plan to get back into the good graces of dad, and now he's lost his plan. Just like Jacob cares about himself, not those who were murdered by his sons, Reuben cares about himself, not so much about Joseph, who he's going to use in order to get back with dad. 31. They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Lying, deceitful little scoundrels, right? Like they've been practicing their poker face all the way from Dothan. How are they going to present this to dad? Dad, we found this. Do you think this is Joseph's? We don't know what happened to him. Probably some tears they've been forcing out. Jacob's heart, obviously, is, is broken. He identified it. He said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. He's broken. He's crushed with sorrow. His favorite child is dead. At least he thinks he is. And he knows that it is his fault. Why did I send him? Why did I send him alone? Why did I send him so far? 35, all his sons, all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now, this is very early in God revealing his plan to people. At this point, God has really taught humanity almost nothing about what is waiting for us in the afterlife. And so we can look back with the whole Bible, we can look back and we can say, wow, because I am in Christ, because he has forgiven me, because I am born again, I know that when I die, my soul goes on to live forever in the presence of God in paradise. But for Jacob, he's got a lot less information that he's dealing with here. Now, he believes that his soul goes on. He believes that there is an afterlife. He believes that there's a place. He calls it Sheol, the idea of the underworld, the place of the dead. He believes that his son is already there and that he will go and join his son there someday. And interestingly, in his words, we get this idea that he believes it's not going to be a happy thing. He's going to go there and continue his mourning with his son. I'm so thankful that we have the rest of the story. We know that if we are in Christ, we have nothing but good to look forward to.
Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And that's the end of the chapter. This chapter is setting up for us the rest of the Joseph story. It answers the question, how did Joseph, the favorite son of the chosen family of Israel, end up as a slave serving in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt? Well, this is how it happened. This was God's plan from the beginning. Joseph doesn't know it. Jacob doesn't know it. The brothers who have been playing this unwitting role in the plan, they don't know it. But this is God's plan from the beginning. This moment, this what we saw today, was the calling of Joseph. Joseph has a divine calling on his life. He is going to be the hero. He's going to be used by God to save the lives of thousands, maybe millions of people. He has a huge divine calling on his life. And this chapter is the moment that that calling is given to him. Thanks, Jacob. Or Jason. Jacob, Jacob, whatever. Um, this moment, this calling, is not a big, the clouds parting, the voice of God coming down. Joseph, I've chosen you. You're my man. You're going to rescue the world, the known world. You're going to save their lives in Egypt in a few years. That doesn't happen at all. Now, that kind of communication has happened in this family before. We could say that the dreams that are leading up to this are supernatural communication from God. But notice that the calling of Joseph to go to Egypt, to become the hero of the story, is, is utterly mundane and normal. Not so much in what's taking place, because none of us have probably been sold into slavery by our brothers. But, but there's nothing supernatural going on in the story. It's almost as like God has disappeared again as we've seen in a few other chapters. But this is the call of Joseph. Notice also that his call comes in the midst of suffering and pain, family, tension, heartache, all of that stuff. This is the hero of the second half of Genesis, and yet God calls him in the midst of suffering and pain and sorrow. That could be true of us too. When we have had those thoughts, what if God has designed me for more than this? What, what's my plan? What's God's plan for my life? What, what am I supposed to be when I grow up? What am I supposed to be when I decide to grow up a little bit more? What, what has God designed me for? We've often wanted God to just show up with a booming voice and say, I have designed you and called you to this. Now get to work. But if you're sitting around waiting for that kind of call to figure out what, design, what God has designed you and called you to do in life, you're probably going to be pretty disappointed. So would you consider with me the reality of Joseph's call and how that might intersect with your life? Joseph is suffering. Joseph is in pain. Joseph is full of shame and anger. He can't believe that he's been sold as a slave. He's probably mistreated, given just enough food to present himself as a reasonably strong person when he gets to the slave market, but not to waste 
food on him. Who knows what he has been forced to carry or drag or what he's been forced to do on this walk to Egypt. In that, God is preparing him and calling him to be the hero that he will be in these next few chapters. You and I want to escape our suffering as fast as we can. And yet sometimes it is God using our suffering to call us to whatever it is that he has designed us for. Sometimes it is the very nature of our suffering that points us to our mission. That the thing that has hurt you the most, that has wounded you the most, the thing that haunts you at night, may be pointing you to the thing that God has called you to do. Joseph has been betrayed by his family. And yet God will place him into a greater family, the household of Pharaoh, in order to rescue the family of Egypt and rescue his family, the family of Israel, in a matter of a few years. The pain of the family leads to God's calling to rescue the family. Maybe that's true of some of you here too. What's that thing that has hurt you more than anything else? Maybe God is calling you in that pain to devote your life to serving him and others in the line with that pain. God loves to work in that kind of way, to redeem the thing that hurt us most and turn it into our divine calling from ministry to others. That's what's happening here in the Joseph story. I think about King David writing all those psalms, ruling the nation pretty well for many years, how he was so mistreated by his brothers. I think about Joseph being thrown in the pit, pleading with his brothers, please, Judah, Gad, Zebulun, please pull me out. And yet when they pull him out, it's only to sell him as a slave somewhere else. But for David, he's reflecting on his life many years later, and he writes in Psalm 40, he writes this, I waited patiently for the Lord, He inclined to hear my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. David looks back on the suffering of his younger days. He sees it as a pit that he's trapped in like Joseph, and yet God reached down, pulled him up out of the pit, set him on solid ground. But look at the next verse then. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And one of the parts of David's divine calling is as a musician and a songwriter. We have most of the book of Psalms because he was an excellent songwriter. And so for David, in this particular song, which is one of my favorites, because U2 does it as a great song, they... David links the suffering of the pit, the rescue from the pit, to the next thought, which is, God put a new song in my mouth, and that's part of his calling in his life as songwriter extraordinaire. Many of the psalms that we have in the book of Songs, Psalms could not have been written without the suffering of the songwriter first. Maybe God's calling you to write a song. Maybe it's calling you to start a particular ministry, serve in a particular way, reach out to particular groups of people who are broken in particular ways, and he's using the darkness of your past to help point you in that direction. That's my prayer for you. As you reflect on this 
strange, mundane, ordinary calling, Joseph. Let's pray. Father, thank you that nothing gets wasted with you, that, that you, as the sovereign ruler over all of it, are, are working for our good and for your glory through all of it. That when we are betrayed by family members, when we are, uh, when we are violated, when we are broken, when we are lied to, when we, when we suffer greatly, publicly or secretly, you are still good and faithful and working in that. And and Lord, I, I want to pray that you would work in this congregation so that each of us, and whatever the things are that are hiding in our hearts, festering as bitterness and anger and all this stuff, that you would, you'd be freeing us from those things and that we would be able to look back, and just like Joseph's going to say at the end of the story, that we would be able to say that people meant those things as evil against us, but that you, Lord, meant it for our good. So we, we proclaim, even today, and maybe we're, some of us here are really suffering today, and we're confused, hurt, we don't know what's going on. We would choose to proclaim your greatness, your worthiness, your perfection, your love for us, your faithfulness towards us. We would, even in the darkness, when we can't see what's coming, we would proclaim that this morning. We would yield ourselves to you, and we would trust you. We would say, Lord, use us, shape us, call us. What is it that you have for us in the future? Help us to discern that, and may our lives bring you glory. In Jesus' name.